You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hello, everyone. So I get to start us off this week, and boy, howdy, do I have something fun. Well, I hope so. What do you got? So this week, I have the Tragulus Javanicus, also Javanicus. known as the Java Mouse Deer. Java Mouse Deer? Java Mouse Deer. Have either of you is heard Is it a deer or a mouse? It is an ungulate. It is a deer. Okay. Okay. It sounds vaguely familiar, but I, I go for it. I want to hear about this. <laughs> So, well, okay, so they call it a deer. It's not technically in the deer family. It's in the... It's not cervidae? It's not cervidae. Um, But it looks very deer-like. So I'm going to give you a little more description here. So the Java mouse deer is... So it has a triangular-shaped head, very similar to a deer. Has, like, an arched back with a round body... So it's very round it. in general mm-hmm. uh, and has a higher rear end. Okay. It has, oh, it's really okay. cute. It is, it has thin short legs, which support the body. Um, uh-huh. And it does not have antlers or horns like regular deer. Um, the male Java mouse deer do have elongated tusk, like upper canines. Uh, to defend themselves and their mates against rivals. Uh, And the females uh, don't have those canines, and they're slightly smaller. Um, The coloration of the coat is generally a reddish-brown with a white underside. Uh, It has pale white spots or vertical markings uh, on its neck. Okay, This uh, animal is considered to be endemic to java indonesia hence the name java mouse deer um there have been unverified reports of them on bali so okay unknown and we don't know now i want what did i not include when i you didn't include size how big is it rachel i'm assuming it's like three inches tall or something ridiculous (laughs) So that's way too small. I can't those, do that. Those thin short legs I talked about. Yeah. Those are about the diameter of an average pencil. Oh, oh my. Very thin. Okay. It okay. is the average length of the Java mouse deer is 18 inches. And the average oh. height is about 12 inches. Oh. Making my. it the Smallest. It's so, so that's tiny. about thirty centimeters high. Uh-huh. And, and about forty-five centimeters long. Yeah. I'm booting up pictures here. Let's see. Oh it is so, so cute. cute. <laughs> that um, is it is the ridiculous. smallest extant even toed ungulate. 
oh, there's a, oh, that, that's fake. I saw a picture, I'm like, I thought someone, I'm like, like a baby one, I'm like, oh, it's a baby. It's a, it's a model someone made, but it's super cute. Okay, um, go on. They are 2.2 to 4.4 pounds. And oh, uh, the average tail length is two inches. So like their tails are like really really long or long compared to the rest of their body yeah um they're thought to be the most primitive ruminants based on their behavior and the fossil record um so they're the living link between ruminants and non-ruminants okay and just to give you a little more of an idea um they are often compared to being the size about the size of a rabbit uh, this yeah, be a big rabbit like to me, but yeah, just oh, it's precious. Um, so just to give a little more, th- that's really what makes them strange is just how small they are. Like the fact that they have really thin diameter of uh, average pencil legs holding up their little bodies. That's wild. Uh, it's absolutely wild, but they. Are, they have the smallest red blood cells of any mammal. They, um, so they're Wait, not even. What? Yeah. So. I would, I would not have thought that. I thought that would sort of be standard. correlate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Nope. Uh, apparently not huh. for these guys. Java mouse deer are, like I was saying, they're endemic to Indonesia um, in Southeast Asia and, um, Java. Uh, so generally speaking, they're found in overgrown, like primary and secondary forests. They like to reside around rocks and hollow trees and dense vegetation kind of near water. Um, so Java, Indonesia has a lot of, uh, rainforest. So they're a rainforest dwelling species. Um, they, they're just so small. Um, not only do they, uh, hang out around rocks and those types of things, but, uh, they also, uh, do form monogamous family groups. So some are solitary, but they're very, and they're very shy and they try to remain unseen to the point where we're not a hundred percent sure what, how they're doing necessarily in the wild. Um, oh. there's not enough, uh, there's not enough people people or like surveys that have happened for them, mm-hmm. but they can like make their own little like tunnel like trails through the brush to uh, oh, find bet, feeding yeah. and resting sites. Um, and the male mouse deer are territorial. Uh, they'll mark their territories to let everyone know like, hey, this is my space. Their average lifespan is about 12 years. They'll wean from their parents after about two months or so. I talked earlier how they were the um, the living fossil species between ruminants and non-ruminants. Um, yeah, yeah. A ruminant is just an animal that has uh, multiple chambers in their stomach, and they have to like re-eat, kind of like a cow with its cud. I think I think we've mm-hmm. talked about ruminants before. Um, so the mouse deer has a three-chambered stomach, and they use the microorganisms in their stomachs. Uh, to digest their food they're generally herbivores uh, and frugivores uh, so they eat leaves buds fruit uh, shrubs and fruits um, 
And in zoos, actually, they will also eat insects. Fun thing. Hmm. Um, probably also in the wild, let's be real. Probably <laughs> right. also in the wild. Uh, their main Perhaps pre- has not been documented, but yeah. Right. Uh, their main predators are actually snakes. So the reticulated python huh. and the gold-ringed wow. cat snake uh, are their main predators. Uh, which, Amazing. you know, well, I mean, besides humans, but I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> so, you know, I would just think for a yeah. snake eating something like a deer would be so uncomfortable. All right? the, the you have to sharp choose. pokey legs. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Sounds unpleasant. But that's what I it's have something. for you both today. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah. All right, we're going to go to a break, and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature see you soon hey we're back uh, kirk rachel have either of you ever encountered a staghorn fern do you know what that is uh yes. yeah yeah yes. do you seem like seen them as a house plant i believe yes. so yeah they're they're not uncommon, I guess you could say. I mean, they're, they're sort of one of the more exotic houseplants. Um, mm-hmm. But you sometimes see them uh, like mounted on a board <laughs> because right. yeah, yeah. they're actually an epiphytic species. Um, Hold on. I'm sorry. Can you explain what is epiphytic? Oh, I will. I will. Epiphytic okay. uh, means that it's a plant that grows on other plants. So in the wild, it grows on, on trees not oh. so its roots are not in the soil got it okay cool. yeah thank yeah, you I've seen, I've seen, these are really common in like arboretums and things yes like that. yeah um they're they're widely grown as an ornamental species and in arboretums and stuff and uh, the the latin name is platycerium bifurcatum and they're native to java new guinea eastern australia and lord howe island which is um it's an isolated island basically almost halfway in between australia and new zealand and these ferns are actually part of a genus, all of which are known as staghorn or elkhorn ferns, which can be found in tropical and temperate uh, parts, mostly in the southern hemisphere. So the reason they're called this is that the leaves don't look exactly like the typical feathery fern that you kind of might imagine when you hear the word fern. Uh, they kind of have the shape of deer antlers. This is sort of funny, given that you were talking about a deer. Although right. That's that found have in Java, does, by the way. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't have antlers, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, there's a story here that they, they became plants, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but there are actually two kinds of leaves on each plant. So the longer antler-shaped fronds are called strap fronds, and they're relatively okay. long and be kind of kind of kind of be waxy in texture. And these can be the fertile fronds that produce spores, which is sort of like a seed, but not okay. Right. 
Um, <clears throat> the second kind of frond is called a nest frond, and it's smaller and usually roundish, kind of heart or kidney shaped, and found in a sort of rosette at the base of the plant, uh, which is near mm. where it attaches. It has a rhizome and then these tufted roots that okay. attach it to the host tree and absorb nutrients and water. Uh, and the nest fronds will die and turn brown once they mature, but they remain attached to a plant, and they are infertile. Okay, okay. so you might say so far, that's interesting, Victoria, but not that strange. Okay, right. I'm about I to get mean... to the weird part. Oh, I'll of say, course. That was interesting, Victoria, but not that strange. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It seems strange enough. <laughs> okay, it's, it's about to get really weird, though. Okay. Uh, perfect. A paper was published this past May in the journal Ecology that suggests that staghorn ferns may display the first known instance of eusociality in plants. What? So, yeah. So eusociality, as a quick review, this is something we've talked about before a few times on the show. Um, I think with respect to naked mole nuts, which was my very first topic, and honeybees and maybe right, some others. show number one. Oh, yeah. so long ago. Um, yeah. So it's defined as, a, as species that uh, have three criteria. One, they have to live in a colony with overlapping generations of adults. Two, they have to practice a division of labor into reproductive and non-reproductive groups. And three, they have cooperative care of offspring. So okay. this is mainly practiced Ooh, by insects. And, yeah. And you're saying this is the plants the, do this. Yeah. The fern does this. Yeah, so like insects, ants, bees, wasps, termites, a few others. Yeah. Uh, the mole rats, two species of mole rat. There's one apparently used social species of shrimp, which is a crustacean. Uh-huh. But this, this paper, um, which was written by Kevin Burns and colleagues from the University of Wellington, suggests that these plants might actually be social, which is like, it's unheard of. Nobody yeah. ever really thought plants could, could even do that. So, All right, give us a breakdown. So, how? What's yeah, the... Burns, uh, Kevin Burns had been doing research on Lord Howe Island, and he had noticed that the, these ferns, which are everywhere there, never seemed to occur just by themselves or singly. They're always in these large colonies. And looking okay. at these okay. colonies more closely, it seemed like the different individual plants in different parts of the colony were shaped differently and played different roles. So okay. he decided to investigate a little further. And so these strap fronds of the ferns, these are the long antler-shaped ones, um, near the right. top of a colony are upright. And they are shaped so that they direct water to the center of the colony. Okay. Makes and sense. the nest fronds of these plants near the top are waxy, and they also appear to sort of funnel water down toward the center. Lower down okay. in the colony, kind of underneath... The individual plants have strap fronds that sort of hang limply toward the ground. And the nest fronds okay. have a spongier texture and a round shape that seems to be better at absorbing and storing water. Okay, this all makes sense so far. Yeah, so kind of a division of labor between uh, collecting and funneling water and nutrients and storing and absorbing water. Right. And the colonies do have a network of roots that go throughout them that lets the individual plants share the water and nutrients stored by the lower down plants. Mm-hmm. And okay. he also sampled individuals at different heights from 10 different colonies and found that the higher up a fern was in, the co in a colony, the more likely it was to have reproductive fronds. 
And also 40% of the plants had no reproductive fronds at all. Wow. And that was based on location within the colony. And I'm assuming this was consistent from colony to colony. I was, I was not able to figure out that detail because I couldn't get full access to the paper. So I, I could read like uh, the first page of it and then a couple of news articles real that fun. were talking about it. Yeah. Um, but Maybe if any of our listeners have full <clears throat> access, go ahead and just yeah. email that to Victoria. Woo-hoo. I'm sure if we emailed the researchers, they'd love to let us read it. Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> uh, they also did, interestingly, did some DNA analysis of the 10 different colonies, and eight had plants that were clones of each other. Two of the colonies have had some individuals that were genetically distinct. Okay. So it's a little, you know, there's a lot more research that needs to be done. So it seems like yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the three criteria for being eusocial, the division of labor is satisfied. Like that seems clearly to be taking place with okay. the different shapes of the, the leaves or the fronds. Um, mm-hmm. But there is more research that needs to be done to understand if they can be considered to meet like the overlapping generations criteria and whether they co-op. Is that because the, share, the sharing of nutrients and water and whatnot? Can be, yeah. Is that where that's coming from? Well, and I'll just like, there's some so definitions get tricky when you're talking about plants because are they, so right. are these all one plant? Are they just clones of each other? Is You know, you yeah. think of like other plants where it's like an aspen. Yeah. Are those individual plants or are they part of one giant plant? Yeah, that's a lot of debate that is going on with that. Yeah. Um, okay. So they haven't fully worked out those, those answers or questions yet. Uh, Perfect. I, I love when there's more to yeah. discover. And I always want to learn more. <laughs> so, and also whether they can be considered to be cooperatively caring for their offspring. Is, right. Or are they just kind of all sharing resources? Yeah. Well, because I think so often with, with animals, we want to put, say, there's intention, you know, to take care for the young. Mm-hmm. And the plants are like, oh, well, they're, they're not trying to care for them. They just happen to be growing there because that's where they are. Mm-hmm. And they are not as big because they are lower down, all that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of that might be structural in animals as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, for things like insect colonies, they're not going get, having board meetings going, you know what, if, uh, if, if you guys were doing this, it would really help the colony. I mean, some of these are just emergent properties of, you know, the co- living together, you know. So mm-hmm. it, it's fascinating to think about plants having some of those emergent properties of a colony that just come about because of the way they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if we call it being eusocial in animals, I think we'd have to in plants as well. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's just such a cool area of exploration and, and whether or not it eventually pans out that it can officially meet all the criteria of eusociality or not, it's still a really neat discovery. And, you know, it makes me think about um, some episodes we had earlier. I, I talked about, and then Kirk, you had talked earlier about uh, carnivorous plants yeah, and just about how uh, the things that plants can do 
are more complex and and more animal-like in some cases than we like to think. And also, I mean, as we always talk about, nature laughs at the little boxes that we like <laughs> to put it into. Well, Indeed. also, like, plants have been here for millions of years longer than animals, so it makes sense yeah. that they have other mm-hmm. ways to care for young that we don't, don't get. Well, it sounds like, much like uh, my topic last week with, um, you know, the quantum entangled eye particles and whatnot, this is oh, one man. we need to uh, revisit, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, episode 500, come back and see what the... Uh, how the science has changed, if it's still, if we've gone to the direction or reinforced and no more. So that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. So thanks everyone for listening this week. And we will see you all next week. I think Kirk we, has to uh, do his really? topic. I, I was going to do a topic this week as well. But, I mean, uh, yes. Oh my gosh. Okay, <laughs> let, me, let me do that again. I'm going to suggest, well, no, no, no. Well, no, we're keeping this in. <laughs> We're going for a break, and when we come back, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a topic this week. <laughs> it's a fun I surprise that hurt, that this could be part of the blooper reel. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. So that's, that's uh-huh. all I have on my topic for Kirk, this week. this is a week. women-only podcast this week. You're just Apparently. here for, comic, you're here here for color oh commentary. <laughs> I, mean, I prepared something. I figured I'd do it. Let's go to the break, and then I'll do a topic. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And when we come back from the break, it'll be Kirk. Thank you, Kirk. (laughs) I'm leaving all of that in, by the way. It's been cold here in the Northland, so a certain animal has been missing from the landscape. Uh, now, a yes, few have, I know. actually. <laughs> yeah, lots of I knew you were going to say that. Lots of animals have either migrated away or gone into hibernation. But the animal I'm talking about this week does neither of those things. It prefers a strategy known as torpor. And I know you both know what that is. But, <gasps> yes. Uh, Which I think one the torpor are you is like about? my preferred winter strategy as well. Uh, if I if I could do it, torpor is basically like a very deep sleep through the hardest parts of the winter. Uh, an animal in torpor will curl perfect. up. Yeah, will curl up with some friends and family, say inside a den or a hollow tree, and basically sleep when it gets really cold. And when we have a oh. warm spell, these animals will wake up, you know, play, find food, go to the bathroom and whatnot, and make use of the nice weather. Uh, so uh, much like me, lovely. after a nice fun a day of fun in the snow, they then go back. To torpor. So the best example, or my favorite example of an animal that does this, uh, is the lovable trash panda. <laughs> raccoon. I was just thinking about raccoons. So you know they're they're not out right now, but when it warms up just a little bit, that we'll find their little footprints all over the place. Mm-hmm. Today I'm I'm talking about raccoons, you guys. <gasps> <gasps> raccoons. I love raccoons. I thought yeah. you were talking about so torpor. First of all, I was fully prepared and on board for it, but no, now you're going to no, talk no. about we, little trash pandas? We can pandas? do a deep dive on that another time. I want to talk about the trash panda. And Yay. actually, I want to talk about that name. That's where I want to start is with that name. So, oh, good. Um, first of all, they are not really related to giant pandas, except that, you know, they're both mammals. Uh, they, um, they are actually somewhat more closely related to uh, red pandas that raccoons are. Mm-hmm. I'm so not red pandas, by that. I knew this. <laughs> Red pandas were originally classified into the raccoon family based on their skulls and their similar appearance. Right. Uh, they're not 
they're not in that group anymore. Uh, red pandas have masks like a raccoon. Uh, mm-hmm. They have some similar behaviors, and they even have ringed tails. Yeah. But uh, red pandas have more recently been assigned to the super family uh, Mustaloidea. Oh, okay. Uh, which also they're includes a like, like well, it includes weasels, but also badgers, skunks, and raccoons. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, they're related to red pandas, but I just so had are an idea skunks. For and continue. we don't we don't call skunks the stink panda, right? We should. Although, yeah, now that I say it out loud, we, we definitely we should, call, we should call them stink pandas. Um, so let's talk about the mask for a minute, okay? So okay. the raccoon mask is one of those things that makes them uh, look kind of like a panda, but uh, it isn't just a coincidence. We see black or dark colors around the eyes of many animals, from pandas to peregrines. Uh, and actually, just uh, Rachel, you mentioned this last week, talking about wood frogs. Uh-huh. They have that black around yeah, the do. eyes, right? Black coloration, especially under the eyes, helps keep stray light from reflecting into the eyes and improves vision. So this is the same reason why you see people like who are playing sports will use eye black. With the eye black. Yeah. I thought about making that comparison and I'm like, you know what? No, eyeliner seems like way more fun. <laughs> there you go. Now, as far as I know, this is not why Gene Simmons from Kiss wore black around his eyes. <laughs> uh, I understand that was to make him look like a demon. Uh, but hey. There are bright lights on the rock stage, so maybe maybe it helped him too. Probably. Now, back to raccoons, though, not Jane Simmons. Uh, raccoons are known for breaking into garbage cans, obviously, and thus the other part of the name Trash Panda, and they get this reputation because uh, they're both dexterous and really smart. Their and hands the name are raccoon, real weird. Well, then the, the thing about that, the, a lot of people have noticed this about their hands, um, and that's actually the name raccoon uh, is derived from uh, an Algonquin word, uh, for raccoons, which meant like he scratches with the hands. Okay. And now hmm. the actual word was, of course, spoken only, not written down. So like when colonists came in and were trying to learn the name of these animals, they apparently had like a terrible time trying to decide how to spell it. And there are some extremely interesting spellings uh, throughout history of this animal. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not really even going to try to pronounce the original word because I have absolutely no frame of reference to even come close. And I don't want to be like insulting with my pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is cool to note, though, that humans have long recognized how amazing and talented raccoons are with their hands. And the word we have today, you know, is, uh, I would say, a derivative of that original word, which was in reference to you know their use of their hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I find raccoons... I don't know about you, but I find them, like, super fascinating. They're so and, cute. And they're also very cute, yeah. S- some scientists actually believe we may be seeing domestication in progress with raccoons, much like what would happened with wolves thousands of years ago. Because huh. raccoons are a species that actually does really well around humans. Uh, they're uh-huh. one of the species that actually benefits the closer they are to humanity and to civilization. Raccoon populations actually increase in areas with more humans, and they huh. have adapted very well to urban life. So we may be starting to see urban raccoons evolving into something different than rural raccoons because of different selection pressures that they face. There's actually a, uh, a woman, huh. Susan McDonald, who's a psychologist and a biologist in Toronto, and she did an experiment where she put garbage cans of food in urban areas and in rural areas, and the urban raccoons figured out how to open them right away and the rural ones, like, could not figure out oh. how to get in. Now, 
I don't know all the details of the experiment, but I'm not really convinced that this shows that urban raccoons are smarter per se, but yeah. it does show that they are, they are presented with challenges that are unique as com- as compared to rural wild raccoons. It's not something that is innate in a raccoon that just makes them able to like, they open know how to garbage open garbage can. cans, yeah. right? It's something urban raccoons have had to learn and, and pass on and whatnot. So if there is a selection pressure for raccoons that are not afraid of humans and that are better adapted to surviving with humans, this very well could lead to raccoons eventually like essentially domesticating themselves much like wolves did. Uh, this is total speculation. So it's kind of fun though. Uh, it's one of those times I wish I had a time machine so we could like I want go no. go 10,000 years <laughs> in the future and be like, hey, how are raccoons doing these days? You know, just like see like I want to see how many changes? pet raccoons there are. To be clear right, though, so try 50,000 ra- years. Raccoons make a terrible pet. Don't oh, do it. Horrible pet. Horrible, oh, horrible. Please pet. don't. Yeah, that's Absolutely a, not. That's a Leave whole them in other story. The wild. Please. Yeah. We're talking Unless about the domestication, but please leave them. There. Leave animals in the wild. I know it's tempting. Yeah. And let's be clear, they are not they are no. not domesticated. Okay, I'm talking about the no. process of domestication. Right. And look, there's a lot of domesticated animals you do not want in your house either. Okay. So there. uh the reason raccoons can get into things like trash cans is that they are, um, like I said, both dexterous, dexterous and smart. But how smart are they? Uh, mm-hmm. Researchers have actually found they are incredibly intelligent, often passing some of the more complex intelligence tests that are given to them. And one of the things I think is just fascinating is that when presented with an unpassable test, raccoons have even been known to break the test in order to pass it. Here's a deep cut for Star Trek fans. Uh, much like Captain Kirk, uh, raccoons would emerge victorious from the uh, Kobayashi Maru exam. That's a super deep cut for the Star Trek. Such a nerdy fans. thing gonna, to say. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that there and not explain it. Uh, but yeah, raccoons have literally like broken test equipment in order to like pass a test or get a treat or something when they're presented with a test that's supposed to not be uh, like passable to see like what will they do well it turns out they just break the test and pass it anyways <laughs> which is amazing. so fascinating so perhaps why they can do that is that raccoons have about 2.1 billion neurons in their Whoa. brain which is similar to your average dog mm, that's not however keep in mind their brain is only about the size of a cat brain yeah. So their neuronal density is exceptional when compared to other non-primate carnivores. They seem to have three times the neurons, specifically in the cerebral cortex, as compared to other mammals. The only mammals with comparable densities are primates. And we hold up primates as kind of like a symbol of, you know, the intelligence that mammals can have. So that's really impressive. Uh, this yeah. information actually comes from a paper called Dogs Have the Most Neurons, Though not the largest brain, trade-off between body mass and number of neurons in the cerebral cortex of large carnivoran species. That was by Deborah Jardim uh, Messender et al. Uh, that's a really long title. And I think they totally missed the boat on the title of the paper anyways by not naming it after raccoons. They right? really focused on dogs. And yeah. they even noted in the paper that when trying to create a model for the relationship between brain size and neuronal density, they actually had to exclude the raccoons from the data set because they keep br- kept breaking the curve. <laughs> yeah, they were essentially the exception to the rule. Pets. And I'm like, hey, that's what the paper should be about. Come on. 
Right. Uh, so look, I could go on and on, uh, but the point I want to get across is that raccoons are amazing and brilliant, and we need to give them more credit. Uh, I only really had time to scratch the surface of how cool raccoons are, so perhaps we'll do a raccoon redux in the future and uh, talk about some of the other amazing, incredible things about them, uh, but that's what I have for you here today. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. Oh, I do. You're I welcome. love raccoons I'm so much. glad you decided to do your part of the episode. Well, I I'm appreciate glad you that allowed too. me to, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we did get to hear about trash pandas, so I, I also appreciate being able to hear about that. Good, good, awesome. Oh my uh, gosh. Well, thank you to both of you and thank you to everyone who listened. We we yeah. obviously really appreciate you guys. And uh, we are, you know, slowly creeping up on our one year anniversary of the show. And getting, close. uh, getting closer. So that we'll, uh, maybe we'll do something special. We'll see. But uh, thanks for tuning in and we'll, uh, you know, see everybody next week. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.